Good morning, church. So I, I want to reflect uh, as we start this morning on the idea of urgency and ask this question, when something's urgent, how do you respond? Um, I also want to introduce you to a new scientific term. It's called the law of inverse urgency. Now, the law of inverse urgency works in a couple places. If you have small kids, maybe your parent, grandparent, the law of inverse urgency is almost always at play, especially with my school-aged children when we're in a hurry. Now, here's how the law of inverse urgency works. When I am in a hurry and something's urgent, my kids move at the opposite pace of what I need them to. Anybody feel my pain? Right? When we're late getting them to school because, listen, mornings are hard for me. Yeah, you feel my pain. Mornings are hard for me. Getting everyone together and out the door on time is a struggle. And it never fails that we're running behind when I'm in charge of the morning routine. I'm like, all right, guys, let's go. And what my kids hear is, you want me to go slow. Right? <laughs> and they go half speed, right? Now, the other place, and this, you see this at work all over the place, like the printer. When I'm in a hurry and I need something before a meeting and I click print, the printer's like... How about tomorrow morning? Does that sound good? And it's the law of inverse urgency. When I'm in a hurry, everything moves a little bit slower. Urgency, on the other hand, uh, when, when, when something's urgent, I, I think it impacts three primary areas. Urgency impacts our purpose, our priority, and our pace. Our purpose, our priority, and our pace. When something is urgent, it gives it a new sense of purpose. We kind of reprioritize, and then our pacing looks different. So let, let me flesh out what this might look like. Uh, my family, uh, for vacation times, for relaxation times, we really enjoy being outside. We love hiking. We love exploring. We discovered this year that uh, my three daughters love to fish. And so if we can get outside, that, that's what we love to do. And so probably once a year, we try to take a vacation out to the Black Hills, which is one of our favorite areas. Uh, part of what I love about it is it's not flat like East River, right? There's some beautiful just elevation changes, and it's only like six hours away. So by the time we're all sick of the car, we're there, right? So by the time we're all at wit's end, it's like, surprise, we're at the Black Hills. We can explore, we can run, we can experience the beauty of the outdoors. Now, one of the things that I enjoy about the Black Hills is when you, when you drive East River, right? The roads are so flat and straight, right? It's kind of boring. I mean, you can see for miles, but West River, there's sort of a beauty to the, like, you know, the roads are kind of curvy and windy and it's up and down hills. And not only that, but there's beautiful scenery to look at. And I love while I'm driving to look out the window and watch the scenery, except I'm bad at multitasking. And so usually as I'm looking at the scenery, my wife will lovingly grab my arm and say, that's not for you. You don't get to look at what's pretty because when I look at the scenery, like I have a tendency, I, I, I drift a little bit, right? So my driving in the Black Hills tends to be a little bit jerky, like it's not very smooth. So a couple years ago, we're, we're driving, I'm enjoying the scenery and I hear these terrifying words from the back seat of my car. Uh, my daughter, I, I don't remember which one it was, but she goes, dad, my tummy hurts. I think I could puke. It was then we discovered that at least one of my daughters, in addition to my wife, has motion sickness. And so now I'm going, okay, we're going to act with a new sense of urgency, right? My purpose, I, I was just enjoying the scenery. I was just having fun. Now my purpose is I don't want to throw up in my back seat. Because when a child throws up in the back seat, additional crevasses open up in your car from which you will never get that throw up out ever again. It's just another law of life, I guess. And so that becomes my purpose. Obviously, part of my priorities, I want her to be safe. 
But the pacing was tricky because I simultaneously wanted to speed up to a place that I could pull over. But the more that I sped up, the more sick that she's feeling, right? And so the pacing was tricky, but I had a new sense of urgency. It was like, all right, this now matters. Let's get somewhere so that she can exit the car and just settle things down a little bit, right? The purpose, the priority, and the pacing looked a little bit different. Now, here's why I say that. I want us to think this morning about what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus Christ to live with a sense of urgency as we live sent on mission for the call and the cause of Jesus Christ. And and part of what we're doing in the series, God's Design for a Well-Lived Life, is we're continuing to look at the teachings of Scripture and ask, what is God's design for you and I to live life well? And this morning, we're going to come to this idea that part of God's design for us to live life well is to live life sent on mission, to live life aligned with God's kingdom call and purpose for his people. So as we flesh this out a little bit, let me summarize where we've been. In part one of this series, we talked about that part of God's design for a well-lived life is that we're called to a life of purpose, significance, and surrender. That God has a purpose for your life. That he wants us to live a life in which we have significant impact. And part of what that means is that we surrender our life over to Jesus. The week after that, Pastor Steve continued with this theme and talked about how we sometimes get hung up on, do I have a lot or little to offer? But it's really about a willingness to say, Lord, what I have is yours. And do we live with a willingness to offer that over to Jesus? Now, last week, Pastor Ryan talked about this idea that we are to live as a people who remember what God has done for us and who live life rooted in worship of Jesus Christ. And when we live life in remembrance of what God has done for us and we live rooted in worship, it helps keep our lives aligned with God's plan and purpose for us. And so as we continue to flesh this out this morning, I I want to talk about, again, God's design for our well-lived life and what it looks like to live life with a sense of urgency for the mission of the gospel. Now, as we talk about God's design for a well-lived life, I want to contrast this with other designs for a well-lived life. We've been looking at the teachings of scripture and our, our belief is that what God lays out for us in scripture is truly God's best design for us. Now, there are cultural definitions of what a well-lived life looks like. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is flesh out sort of the cultural definition of what a well-lived life might look like and contrast this with what I think God's word calls us to. So if we think about culturally, what what might define life well-lived for a culture at large, there's sort of this cultural scorecard of success. And what I mean by this is there are things that our culture around us looks at and says, if you want to be successful, these are three things that you should probably be able to do really well. Now, I've sort of reduced this down. There's other things I'm sure you can think about, but I want to give this to us as a sort of a framework to thinking about how culture might define a well-lived life. I think often uh, our culture would define a well-lived life as one of accomplishment. And it's this idea that you're someone who achieves a lot of things. You're rising through the ranks in your work. You're someone who can set goals and crush them. You are an accomplisher and an achiever. You get things done, right? And, And I think culturally, this is a high value. You can achieve, you get things done. You're a shaker and a mover. You're someone who makes things happen. Now, I think closely associated with this is this idea of uh, acquiring. And this is the idea that we own and possess things. And so part of a cultural scorecard for success is I'm someone who gets things done. And because I get things done and I'm successful here, I have the ability to acquire really cool things, right? I've got the lake place. I've got the boat. I've got the cool car. I've got all of the stuff. Uh, Or on the other side, it could be I've acquired this sort of picture perfect image of of what a family looks like. And we've got everything all together. We, we We have all of our ducks in a row and we're good. 
right? But there's this achievement and this ability to acquire things and get things done that that our culture looks at and says, if you're doing these things, you're probably doing pretty well. Now, the third element to this is this idea of acclaim. And by acclaim, I mean like people sing our praises. You have a sense of reputation. People think well of you and they speak well of you. So what happens is culturally, they would say, you're doing pretty well in life. If you are accomplishing a lot, you're achieving things, you're getting things done, you're getting the promotions, you're, you're, because of that, your financial ability is increasing and you can acquire things. And because of that, you have uh, the acclaim of people around you. Now, when this becomes the cultural scorecard of success, a couple things happen. One, this becomes an endless cycle. You can never accomplish enough because there's always more to acquire and we can always earn the respect of people more. And so this becomes an endless cycle of accomplish, acquire, seek the acclaim and the approval of people, accomplish, acquire, seek the acclaim and the approval of people. Now, the other thing that this does is we get sort of trapped in a comparison game. We're always comparing, comparing our scorecard to the scorecards of other people. It's like, well, I've got the big SUV and they've got the boat and the fancy lake place. So I guess we're sort of even, and, and we don't say it maybe out loud, but we're sort of playing this comparison game. One of the places I see it culturally is in social media, right? And, and you scroll through your feed and the only thing we put on our social media feeds for the most part is like the best image of ourselves. Social media becomes the highlight reel of everything that we have together, but nobody sees the behind the scenes, Right. Here's the image of our best foot forward, so to speak. And what happens, church, is when we live life this way, I want to suggest to you that what happens is it all becomes about me. What can I accomplish? What do I own? Do people speak well of me? And what this leads to is sort of life begins to implode upon itself because suddenly when I meet people, it's like, well, how can I get them to like me? When I'm driven by accomplishment, it's can I use people to achieve my ends of accomplishing things? And and sooner or later, life begins to sort of all focus on me. And, And church, I think that this is a rather small way of approaching life that reduces it to me being the sort of the epicenter of my own universe. Now, here's what I want to suggest to you. Accomplishing, acquiring, and the acclaim or the respect of other people, uh, them speaking well of us, these things are not inherently bad or wrong. They become problematic when these are the things that we're using as a scorecard of our success. When these become uh, sort of the end-all, be-all, I think they become problematic. But what I want to encourage us today is I want to encourage us to think through accomplishing, acquiring, and acclaim with a missional mindset. And when we have a missional mindset, there's going to be a shift in our thinking. And what happens as we shift our thinking is we recognize these are not the scorecard of success. Rather, I want to suggest to you that these are blessings to surrender to God's kingdom purposes. So here's what I mean by that. God has blessed you with the ability and the opportunity to accomplish and achieve certain things. Maybe you're a successful business person. Maybe you've uh, got a great job that allows you to provide for your family. Rather than saying, this is a scorecard of my success, I recognize this as part of God's blessing. It's looking at the things that you have been blessed to acquire, the things that you own, the possessions, and not saying, this is a commentary on my value. Rather, it's saying, God has blessed me with this. When when you have the influence among other people, when they look at you and they say, man, I really respect this person, it's recognizing, again, this is not a commentary on your value. It is a blessing that God has allowed you to be someone of influence. Now, the shift is recognizing that I need to then offer those things back to God in service to him. 
It's to say my influence, the things that I've achieved, the things that I've accomplished, they are not for me to somehow feel better about myself. No, it's to say, God, thank you for what you've allowed me to accomplish and acquire and the influence among others that you've allowed me to have. Now, Jesus, I offer that back to you and I pray that you would use it for your purposes. Now, I want to go back to something that Pastor Ryan drew our attention to last week. This is Exodus chapter 8. In Exodus chapter 8, this is Moses, again, speaking to the people of Israel. And he says this in verse 11. He says, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, if you remember, the people of Israel left Egypt and they're heading towards the promised land. And Moses says, listen, God is leading us into a place of great abundance. But remember, when you get there, don't become so proud that you forget that it was God who brought you there. In verse 16, it goes on and he says, He, God, gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well for you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. And the reason I read that is because there is a fundamental difference in these two worldviews. If we recognize that our ability to accomplish, acquire, and have the influence among other people, we often look at this culturally and go, man, I'm really good. I've worked really hard. I studied hard. I put in long hours and I have done and accomplished and achieved and acquired these things in my own strength. What we see Israel doing in the story of the Exodus, we do. But what Moses said is, don't look at these things when you achieve wealth and go, man, I'm really good. Look what all that I acquired and accomplished. He goes, no, no, no. Remember that it is God who allowed you to have wealth. That all of this is a gift of God's grace. And so church, what I want us to recognize is this is not a scorecard of success, but these are uh, blessings that God has given us. The question is, how will we steward them? And what I want to suggest to us today is that if we're going to live sent, we have a call and a responsibility to say, Lord, everything that you have blessed me with, I now offer back to you. Because here's the thing. God's design for us is this, to live sent on mission in gospel service. We are called to live sent on mission in gospel service. And so what I want to do for the rest of this morning is flesh out, what does this mean? What does it look like to live sent on mission? And how does it change how we might steward these things that God has blessed us with in our life? So as we flesh this out, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, as Jesus sends his followers on mission in gospel service. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of our town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. 
I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So what I want to do is I want to look at what are the live sent principles that we see in this passage as Jesus sends the 72 out to live on kingdom mission and on purpose with a sense of urgency for the gospel. And, and by, king, or by uh, live sent principles, what I mean are what are the things that we see in their life that we can take and apply to our own to give shape to what it might look like for you and I to live sent on mission. Now, he, here's the first thing that strikes me as a live sent principle. It's that it's God who appoints and sends. Right? It's God who comes to the 72, appoints them, and then sends them. And what that says to me is like, for us as believers, this is not a, a sort of optional thing. Right? God has called and equipped the believers and commissioned them to go and, and to live as, as sort of missionaries in and among culture. And we want to look at this and go, well, if, if, it's, if it's convenient, if I get around to it, maybe I'll do it. But no, no, the God himself appointed Jesus, raises up these followers, and now he appoints and sends them. They've been learning from him. They've been sitting at his feet and teaching and instruction. Now he says, go, I am sending you out. Now, we could look at this and say, well, he sends the 72, but does that mean that I'm sent? When you look at Luke's teaching and writing, Luke wrote, of course, this gospel, but he also wrote Acts. In Luke chapter 9, there is uh, the sending of the 12 disciples. Now in Luke chapter 10, there's the sending of the 72. Now, any, anytime there's a number in scripture, I think it's uh, important for us to ask, why that number? Why, why 72? That feels random. Like, you're going, you're going, not you, you're going, not you, you're going, until they get, 72, it feels random. What's interesting is if you read the Greek Old Testament, which is what Jesus and the disciples likely used at this time, in Genesis chapter 10, there are 72 names and nations listed as those who represent sort of the global picture at the time. And so when Jesus appoints 72, he's sort of enacting a metaphor saying all of the known Jewish world, what represents their sense of a global sort of uh, understanding of the world, he's sending them to the nations. Right? If you then read further in Luke's writing in the book of Acts, you get to this point where there is the sending of the entire church. So if you read Luke and Acts together, you get this picture that God is sending all of his disciples out to be a people on mission. Right? This is not just reserved for the 72 disciples then at that time. You and I likewise as believers today are called to go and to live on mission, to live as a sent people. What this means to live sent is that this is not just about me, but it's about using these things in service for other people. To recognize your uh, influence in any sphere of life, God is calling you to wield that sort of influence as a way to invite people back into relationship with Jesus himself. So it's God who appoints and sends. Secondly, it's this. We are sent as representatives of Jesus. Now, as Jesus sends the 72, I didn't read this far, but uh, I'll jump down there for you. This is Luke 10, verse 16. Jesus says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. What Jesus is saying there, he's saying, I send the 72 out. I send the disciples out with my authority as representatives of me. And church, here's what I think is so cool. We look at the world around us. We can see uh, the despair. We can see the despondency. We see the brokenness. You read the newspaper, open your news app and scroll through that. It's, it's pretty clear that the world is broken. And what Jesus is doing here is he says, the world is broken. I'm sending you out to be representatives of me. When people listen to your message, they're actually listening to me. You have my authority. 
How amazing is it, church, that we have been sent with the authority to represent the God of all the universe, to go into places where hope and healing are needed, and to say there is a God who loves you, who cares about you, who wants to redeem you and transform your life, a God who wants to bring hope, and we are sent as representatives. And and too often, church, I think we look back at the brokenness of the world and we go, someone's got to do something about it. And Jesus says, I have sent the church to go and be my representatives to bring the truth and the hope of the gospel right in the middle of despair and despondency, right? This is our calling. This is not something that we can say, well, I'll wait till somebody else comes along. No, we have been appointed and sent with the authority of Jesus to go and proclaim the message of the gospel. Now, the third lift sent principle is this. We're, We're sent to serve in community. Notice that when Jesus appoints the 72, he sends them two by two. This is not a lone ranger thing that somebody just goes out by themselves and says, I'm going to try to do ministry on my own. No, he sends them out in community two by two. Now, I I think there's a couple reasons for this. One, uh, it's we need the encouragement and we need the accountability of traveling in community. But in the Jewish culture, the testimony of one person had a little bit of weight. The testimony of two people was considered binding, right? Maybe if it's one person by themselves and they bear witness to something, you could say, well, maybe they're mistaken. But if there's a second person who corroborates the testimony of the first, you go, well, maybe there's something to this. So the picture you get here is of a community of believers who have been redeemed and transformed. And this redeemed and transformed community is now sent out into the world, sent into culture to bear witness and to represent Jesus Christ. And, and the idea is that as they go into culture, the culture sees this community of redeemed and transformed people. This is not the testimony of one person. This is 72 people going out in pairs who've had their lives changed and transformed and redeemed. And that's hard for culture to go, I can't discount this. There must be something to this. These people who who are bearing witness to having a life change, a life transformation, what is this? And so church, I love this image, right? Of, Of all of us gathered here today, we are sent as a community together in unity to go and bear witness to the purpose and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a redeemed and transformed community, collectively in unity together, There's something about that testimony of so many who corroborate together the hope that we found in Jesus that has power to transform. Two more uh, live sent principles. One is just the idea that uh, the harvest is plentiful. Notice how Jesus says this. He he, he says, there's an urgency to this. Look around you and, and there's no shortage of people who need the message of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And think about, I mean, we're an agricultural community. Think about uh, when, when you've, pl- I mean, we just finished planting season for the most part and we're anticipating harvest. Now imagine it's late fall, the, the, the winter's uh, getting ready to set in. There's an urgency to the harvest to go out into the fields that you planted to bring in the crop. And, and Jesus is drawing on sort of this agricultural metaphor to say there's an urgency here. There are a lot of people who are in need of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go as Christ has appointed us to bear witness to his hope, to his transformation, to his redemption. And the second component to this is that Jesus says, pray that God would send people. That that our call is not just to go, our call is to also be praying for the harvest. And to pray for the harvest means that we pray for our communities, our neighborhoods, our homes, our workplaces, all of the places and spheres of influence where people are in need of Jesus, you and I are called to pray. Now, here's what I wonder. I wonder sometimes if we're afraid to pray about these things because we're nervous that God will send us. So 
so we're praying, we're like, oh Lord, I have this difficult coworker and they need you, Jesus. You can see it in their attitude. Would you send somebody to tell them about you? And God's like, hey, why, why don't you tell them? I'm going to send you to tell them, right? You're a believer. You tell them. And we're like, Lord, please send anybody else. <laughs> Is there someone else? Right? Because we're nervous that if we start, and, and I think there's truth to that. Because when you start praying and interceding and asking God to be present, what, something happens. Your perspective has changed. When you're praying for God to do something, suddenly you begin to see things with spiritual eyes and the spirit will begin to lay things on your heart. And so that difficult coworker who is in need of the hope of Jesus, you might start seeing opportunities to have significant conversations. But church, our our call is not only to go, it's also to pray. We are to be praying and interceding for our communities. Let me make this observation observation about living sent. When when we look at these live sent principles and the fact that we're called to go, I want to make this observation. And it's it's that mission or living sent is a disposition, not just a place. Mission and living sin, it's a disposition, not just a place. Here's what I mean by that. In church world, when we talk about mission, when we talk about living sin, we often think about going someplace else. We talk about a mission trip. Maybe you feel called overseas. Maybe you feel called to go on a short-term mission trip. Or maybe you're going, I absolutely don't feel called overseas. I don't want to go on a short-term mission trip. Because we have in mind that to live sin on mission means going someplace else. But what I want us to recognize is living sent on mission doesn't mean going someplace else. It is a way of orienting your life towards being intentional to wield influence for the cause of Jesus Christ. It means that your life is suddenly lived for different ends, means, and purposes. We no longer live to accomplish, acquire, and acclaim as uh, ends in and of themselves. These are means to gospel kingdom purposes. These are opportunities to steward the achievement and the influence that you have and the things that God has blessed you with to say, I can use those to have a kingdom impact in the life of another person. So living sent means you don't have to drop what you're doing here and go somewhere else. What I'm trying to encourage us is to see our current situation and our current context with spiritual eyes and say, Lord, what do you want to do right here in my midst? How do you want to impact my home? How do you want to impact my workplace? How do you want to impact my neighborhood for the cause of Jesus Christ? And, and here's the thing. If this is the cultural scorecard, some of, our, some of us are letting ourselves off the hook because we go, well, I don't feel like I've achieved much. I don't have a huge sphere of influence. What, what can I do? Listen, I, I don't care what kind of sphere of influence God has blessed you with. We all have an opportunity to make an impact. Maybe you're a business leader and you have a whole team of people under your leadership. Are you leading them and stewarding them in a way that allows them to see the gospel at work in your life and have an opportunity for them to know and experience the truth and hope of Jesus? Maybe you are a stay-at-home parent and you're going, I don't have a whole team of people to lead and influence. I don't have power and position and authority. But listen, if God has blessed you to be a stay-at-home parent, you have a mission field. It's called your family. It's called your children. Be intentional to lead your children in a kingdom-minded, gospel-oriented way. God has blessed you with a mission field. The question is, do we see it and are we obedient to actively step into it? So let's flesh this out a little bit. What, what does a, a, a missional kingdom disposition look like? So a live sent disposition looks like this. Number one, I think it looks like responding in obedience. Now notice in verse three, as Jesus sends the disciples, there's like one of the shortest sentences in the Bible. It just says, go, exclamation point. 
and, and it's, the exclamation point tells us that this is emphatic. That Jesus raises up the 72 he's like, go, go, like actually be sent. Now here's the thing, we can recognize that we are sent and we can simultaneously go, uh, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm just not feeling it today. It doesn't feel right. I feel grumpy. Like I'm not, I just, I don't want to live sent today. But I think if we're going to live as followers of Jesus Christ, recognizing that God has appointed us and sent us to make an impact and a difference in the spheres of influence around us, we act till we actually have to go. We need to respond in obedience. And there's a simplicity to this, right? To just take a step into obedience. And for some of us, this might look like simply beginning to pray, Lord, help me to see my current sphere of influence as a kingdom opportunity to make an impact for you. Or maybe our first step of obedience is to say, Lord, I have been driven by achieving an accomplishment so I can feel like I'm doing something with my life. But Lord, I surrender what I've been allowed to achieve to you. Help me to surrender all of my accomplishments into your hand that I can use those things for a kingdom-minded impact. So there's a question for us, church. Will we respond in obedience to lead in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in a kingdom-minded, lift-sent, intentionally spiritual way? Now, the, the second uh, lift-sent disposition is this. Recognize that there is an urgency to this. Now, did you notice the, the sort of weird advice uh, or command, rather, that Jesus gives them in verse 4? He says, don't take a purse or bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. Now, when you think about it, this is a bizarre image. Imagine a bunch of uh, people that don't have a coat, they don't have a person, they don't have shoes, and they're not saying hi. They're just doing this, right? Walking with their head down, no time to say hi, can't do it. The image looks weird. Here's what I think. I think Jesus is being a little, uh, using a little hyperbole here. The idea for Jesus, as he tells the disciples, is this. Don't get so caught up on the preparation that you actually forget to do what you're sent to do. Right? For some of us, it's going, well, yeah, I mean, I'll use these things for kingdom imp uh, impact and purpose, but first I need to accomplish something. And, and we can get so caught up in, in sort of these distractions of letting these be the end-all, be-all to life that we never actually get around to stepping obediently into the mission of what God has called us to do. And so Jesus isn't saying you should be antisocial and unprepared. No, no, no. What he's saying is don't get so caught up in the distractions of everything around you that you fail to actively be obedient in the very thing that you're called to do. And so church, I, I think for me, this is that there is a sense of urgency to this. And if it's urgent, it should impact our purpose, our priority, and our pacing. For some of us, we're going, oh, we got time. I'll, I'll live sent tomorrow. I'll live sent next year when I feel more spiritual, feel more ready. No, church, the time is now. We live in a culture, in a community, in places where people need Jesus, and the moment is right now to step in and to be bold and obedient in the places where God has called us to live as a sent people. Now, the third component to a live sent disposition is this. We also have to be ready for opposition. And Jesus says this, and, and again, I feel like when, when I think about sending people out, in some ways, Jesus, uh, as he sends them, he's like the worst advice giver ever. Don't take shoes, sandals, uh, a purse. Don't greet. And, and then he says this, verse three, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Think about how weird that sounds, right? Think about, and, and this was an agrarian culture, right? They, they were intimately familiar with the image of shepherds. Can, can I paint this picture for you? Okay, we have our shepherd, and he's out in the field and, and he's guarding the flock 
And by the way, it was common for the shepherds. You, you might be in charge of the flock for a whole community, right? They would gather their flocks together. They might have a rotation of shepherds. So we have this particular shepherd. He's guarding the flock and he sees up on the hills, he sees uh, the silhouette of the wolf, the predator, right? His job is to protect the sheep from the predator. Now imagine that this shepherd goes, all right, come on, sheepy. Come on, sheepy. That, that's how you shepherd is. Come on, sheepy. Right? See that wolf? Go to the wolf, sheepy. Go to the wolf, sheepy. Right? You better believe another shepherd's running out there going, whoa, 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 buddy, buddy, buddy. We don't send the sheep to the wolves. We protect the wolves from, or the sheep from the wolves. We don't, we don't send the sheep to the wolves. But did you hear what Jesus said? He goes, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. He doesn't say to stay back and stay safe among the flock. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't get to just sit here and be safe and to be fat, sassy, and comfortable. He goes, no, I'm sending you out to be present among the wolves. And what Jesus is saying is we are called to be sent as a people who have a countercultural influence in a world that might really actually reject who we are and what we believe. And what we want to do is to stay back where it feels safe and where it feels comfortable. But to do that is, is to be disobedient. We are called to be sheep among wolves. Now, there's a couple things that, that strike me about this. He doesn't say you should pretend to be wolves when you're among the wolves. He goes, no, no, no. You maintain your identity as a sheep, but you're to do that among the wolves in a way that's countercultural and revolutionary. Live out the truth of your identity, but do it among the people who they might not even receive or accept your message. This, to me, brought to mind uh, John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying for the disciples. And he says this, verse 15 of John 17. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And church, I think somewhere along the way, the church lost its way and we want to fight the culture wars and it's, we're seen as opposition and the world is bad and maybe let's start a monastery and pull away. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm sending the church into the world to have a sanctified, holy presence to tell people about the truth and the hope of Jesus Christ. We are called to be sheep among wolves, not to stay safe and comfortable in the flock. If we're going to live sent, we have to go and step forward in obedience saying, God, I don't know if this is going to be received, but I'm going to lead boldly as someone who's living sent with gospel urgency that other people might know you. And I love Jesus' prayers. He says, I'm not, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but God, would you protect them? Because he says, just as I was sent, so now I am sending my disciples. And I think the final lift sent disposition is this. We have to be ready to proclaim the message of the gospel. It's not just to be among the wolves for the sake of being among the wolves. It's to be among the wolves with the gospel at the ready. And notice, as you read this passage in Luke 10, the two key things that Jesus says the followers of Jesus are to proclaim. He says, when you enter a home, let your peace be offered to the home that you enter. Now, when when we see the word peace, Jesus isn't just saying this as sort of a ritualistic blessing. He's not just saying like, oh, just be nice and say, peace be with you. No, no, this idea of peace is deeply rooted in the Jewish Hebrew culture and context. The Greek word is irene, the, the Hebrew word is shalom. And the word shalom means the wholeness and completeness of God's purpose and presence for his people. 
When, when as, as a Hebrew uh, person, when you, uh, a common greeting was to tell someone, shalom. But what you're saying to them is, may your life be whole and complete in presence with Yahweh. May your life be whole and complete in the presence of the God of the universe, because it's he who brings what's good for you and what's right for you. The Bible Project, in one of their videos, they, they quote it this way. They say, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but true peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness. What that means is we can only restore something to wholeness. Only God can do that. Only in and through his grace and the power of his spirit. And so what Jesus is saying is when you enter a home, may you offer them the truth of the gospel that calls them to wholeness with, in relationship with the God of the universe. Then he says, as you enter the town, proclaim to them that the kingdom of God is near. When you proclaim that the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is this idea of everything being rightly submitted to God's authority. And, and so what he's telling the believers is he's saying, I want you to go to these places that are broken. I want you to go to these places where people are in need of Jesus and tell them, listen, God can bring you shalom. God can make your life complete and whole and right in him. And you might feel broken and you might feel despair and you might not see a way forward or a way out, but the kingdom of God is near. The redemption of God is breaking forth and is even now present in your life. If you will respond, God has something significant for you. And we are called to bear witness to that hope, to call people to God's peace, to call people back to this reality that even now God's redemptive work in his kingdom is breaking forth right in our midst, that Jesus has already come and offered his life on the cross. He's already rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he offers us a new way forward. And we as the body of Christ are to be sent into culture as sheep to bear witness to the coming peace and the nearness of the kingdom of God. Two, two caveats to this. I, I look at this, right? And if you're like me, do you ever just have a week where you're trying to survive? Like, I'm not even accomplishing anything. Like, I'm behind the ball all week. I'm not crushing anything. Do you ever have a week like that? I, I have those weeks. And it's like, I'm trying to, like, get my kids to school. And I'm trying to, uh, like, do what God has called me to do in my job well. I'm trying to be a husband and all these things. And it's like, I'm not even doing that well. And now, like, live on mission. Like, ugh, it just feels like a lot. Can I not? Listen, this is not to be a burdensome thing. Notice, as God tells the disciples, he calls them only to be faithful, not fruitful. Right? In, in, in when it talks about coming before God at the end of all things, uh, our hope is that God responds, well done, good and faithful servant, not good and fruitful servant. Right? We, what we want to do is we want to take the gospel and reduce it to an accomplishment thing. Like, God expects me to do big things for the kingdom. No, God just expects you to be faithful in the little things of every day. And, and I love the simplicity of this. So honestly, sometimes this looks like on a Monday morning going, uh, God, I'm doing my best today. I feel behind and I feel overwhelmed at the week ahead. But would you help me to see things with kingdom eyes and not to miss the moments that pass in front of me? I think it starts with something as simple as that. Surrendering the day and the week into God's hands before it even unfolds. And saying, Lord, I want to be ready and I want to be available. Help me to see. 
Now, the other caveat to this idea is sometimes we look at this idea of living sent on mission and it's like, man, I'm, I don't feel qualified. Like, what if I fumble my words? What if I make a fool of myself? I, I just don't know if I can do this. But you, you heard Pastor Brendan mention something in his prayer at the start of the service, that this is Pentecost Sunday. So in the liturgical calendar of the church, uh, we celebrate Pentecost Sunday today, and it really is the birthday of the church. So happy birthday, church, right? And what we're celebrating is in Acts chapter 2, when, when the disciples are gathered, and in many of the gospels, when you see this picture of the disciples, they're not gathered like, yes, we're on mission. They're behind locked doors, terrified, like, what do we do? Jesus just ascended to heaven. He left us here. Like, what do we do now? And in Acts chapter two, the disciples are praying and part of me wonders if they're like, Lord, just help us. We're so like, we don't know what to do. And as they're praying, it says they hear the sound like a rushing wind and the Holy Spirit descends on them, right? And what Jesus told the disciples, this is Acts chapter one, verse eight. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we recognize church is this call to go and live on mission is not something that I have to like try hard to be good enough to do. All we need to do is to surrender into the reality that God's spirit is present and at work within us and will be at work through us. That he empowers us. And by the way, when you read Acts chapter one, verse eight, he doesn't say you'll receive power. And if you feel like it, maybe say something about the gospel. And he says, you'll receive power when the spirit comes on you and you will be. It's as if when, when you are living and walking in life in the spirit, we can't help but be compelled by the power of the spirit to bear witness to the redemptive work of what God is doing. So here's this question I want us to wrestle with. Is what does it look like for us to live sent right where we are? I'm not saying you have to sell your home and move overseas. I'm not saying you need to go on a short-term mission trip. What I'm saying is right where you are, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, how can you live with an intentional, surrendered life that says, God, all I have is yours. Would you use it to make a kingdom impact in the life of another person? And how might that change how we approach the rhythm and routine of normal, everyday life?